God's grace, peace, and mercy be with you on this third Sunday in Lent through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. For our opening hymn this morning, I was originally going to have us sing uh, hymn two in the Lutheran hymnal, uh, To Thy Temple I Repair. But uh, since we're using the, uh, you know, limit our contact with objects in the church, I had us use the paper hymnal today from the Lutheran service book. And it turns out that that old hymn is carried forward into the new hymnal, but the name is slightly changed. To your temple, Lord, I come. The older title is interesting, though. To thy temple I repair. Goes well with our text today from Matthew, where Jesus predicts the destruction of the temple in Jerusalem. Does the temple look like something that would be easy to repair? I mean, construction-wise, we could. Well, we, meaning either Christians or Jews, could repair the temple to its original glory in the days of King Solomon or even later in the days of King Herod the Great. Indeed, as you heard me say... Whoops, what happened? As you heard me say last month when I gave my little presentation about Israel, our trip to Israel. Uh, Israel today is all about repairing stuff that was toppled by earthquakes and wars. But the temple in Jerusalem is a bit tricky. Jordan has administrative control over the temple now, and it's the third holiest site in Islam. So for now, no one but the Muslims are going to touch the temple. Repairing the temple in the literal sense is not what that old Christian hymn is about anyways. Repair. Repair is an artifact from the days when Latin words were used more in the church. It means to be prepared. Lord, to your temple I come prepared. Seems more appropriate now than ever, doesn't it? Lord, I come to your temple with my hands washed and sanitized. And even that's not what it really means, though. Spiritually prepared, right? Believing Jesus and his promises, his warnings and his prophecies, that's what it means to be prepared. As well as spiritual cleansing, baptism, namely, right? A person who is baptized is certainly prepared to come to the temple. And when you're baptized, you are a temple, right? You are the temple to the Lord. But let's go back to the temple in Jerusalem. Jesus predicts that it's all going to topple down one day. Last Sunday, we let Matthew take us through one of the gates of that great city, right to the temple square where Jesus chased out the vendors, cleansing and preparing the place for his sacrifice on our behalf. Now, he tells of its destruction. And this is one biblical prophecy that doesn't take a millennia or a couple of centuries to come about. This happens about 40 years after Jesus says it. And it's darned accurate, too. Well, of course it's accurate. It's from God, right? What I mean is when Jesus says that there's, there, there won't be one stone that isn't toppled, that's exactly what happens. By August of that year, the year 70, the 10th Roman legion 
which had already laid waste to much of the city, finally got to the steps of the temple. And history has it that Caesar Titus in Rome ordered his legion not to destroy the temple because he had future plans for it. He wanted to make it a temple to the Roman gods. But some over-enthusiastic commander didn't get the email from Rome or chose to ignore the memo and burned out all the wood inside the temple, all the interior fittings, all the furniture, all the tapestries with the bodies of hundreds of Jews and pilgrims who'd gotten trapped there when they came to celebrate the Passover a few months before. When all the wood was burned up, the roof caved in, you know, similar to what happened with uh, Notre Dame Cathedral in Paris. All that remained were the stone walls, and that was pretty easy to just push over with brute force. You know, it's not hard to imagine being trapped on a cruise ship for several days, floundering off the coast of California with your fellow passengers and crew exposed to coronavirus and you're waiting to be taken to another kind of prison on shore when you're quarantined, poked and prodded to make sure you're okay before being set free. We can imagine that. A vacation gone sour, to be sure. But try to imagine you and your spouse and your young children having traveled all the way across the Judean desert from Edom or somewhere to celebrate the Passover in the capital city. You made sure you got there a few days early so that you could get a decent place to lodge before the big rush. You buy your food and your items needed for the Passover meal. You're all set. And then you hear the news. There's an army coming. You're at the right place at the wrong time. Or the wrong place at the right time. I don't know. A huge army has been spotted coming up the hill. It's Rome. And it looks like she's going to put a stop to the insurgencies that have been irritating Caesar for quite a while now. And a little while later, it happens. The soldiers breach the gates of the city. And you and your spouse and your kids are trapped. Nowhere to go. Maybe you can escape to the tunnels that carry the city's water supply. But you have to know where those are. A family pilgrimage gone sour. The destruction of Jerusalem and the temple is so great of a thing in Jewish soul, mind, and spirit. As a Gentile, I can't even convey it to you. For thousands of Jews then, it was literally the end of the world. And for those who managed to escape it or survive it, the end of their world was not far off either. Many survivors were thrown to the lions in amphitheaters for entertainment. Many sold into slavery or were just cut down wherever they were found. But this was all foretold by Jesus, the promised Messiah. What were the Christians doing when this prophecy became a reality? Where, where were the disciples? What was the reason for all of this and why is it even important today? Well, when this was going on, you wouldn't find many Christians, if any, in Jerusalem. It wasn't safe. 
You wouldn't make it public that you were a follower of the man who'd 40 years earlier or so was put to death for claiming to be God. That was an insult to the God of the Hebrews and to Caesar. Now, out in the Judean countryside, however, things were a little better. In Galilee and on the coast and the deserts, Christians were gathering and worshiping in small hidden groups. It was a little safer away from the capital, but still you were under threat from Jews and Romans. Now, where were the disciples? Well, when the temple was, was toppled, John was still alive. Peter and Paul had been killed two years earlier. Nevertheless, the word of God and his love for all people was spreading like wildfire. Copy upon copy of Paul's letters were being made and distributed among the believers all over. New people by the thousands were coming to faith by the Holy Spirit. And the witnesses of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John were getting around, as well as the Acts of the Apostles. What were the Christians doing? Comforting each other, encouraging each other, and waiting for the end to come. It's what we're still doing today. My friends, this virus that's going around and the many tens of thousands of other viruses and diseases and conditions and illnesses, infections, ailments, ailments which people are afflicted with as we sit here is a result of the fall of creation. It's sin. Sin is not just the bad things that, that we do and think. It's not just addiction and perversion and abuse and neglect and immorality. Sin is woven into every fiber of our existence because of the curse of the fall of creation. You and I are caught up in it. And our bodies and minds suffer the consequence of Adam's disobedience. But though one man brought disease into the world, one man, Jesus, has cured it with his suffering, death, and his blood shed on the cross for you and me. This illness across our land will pass, but more will follow. These are signs which remind us of the nearness of the end of, the, of this age. Times of national and global emergency don't seem like times to rejoice. But you and I are here, and we can, and do. For those who don't and won't believe Jesus, this is a time of judgment for many. Jesus stands at the gate, and those who don't know him won't go in to everlasting life. But for the believer, we are nearer to Jesus and his love than ever before. Now, I'm going to let Matthew Harrison, president of the Lutheran Church, Missouri Synod, finish this little message up. He's going to use the, a text from Luke that is the, pretty much the same as the one from Matthew. It's a little different. Uh, but it's not going up. So I think what we're going to have to do is I'm going to have to send you the message by email. All right, we'll send you a link to it, and I'd like you to watch it. Very encouraging and basically follows up what I said. We're waiting for the end. Jesus has, <laughs> has cleansed you and me from all sin, and we are prepared. Repair, Lord, to the temple I come. Amen.